back to center. Um, how's it ever going to get back to stable again? It's going to come from a massive move of the Holy Spirit across this land. It's happened many times throughout America's history, and we need to be praying for God to do that again. We have been in a series uh, looking at the first of the two letters that Peter writes to the churches, 1 Peter. And um, our text for today comes from 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Last week, well, really the last three weeks, including today, have been part of this little section of Scripture uh, where Peter is talking about the sacrifices of Jesus and ways that this can be lived out and pra- practically in relationship to the government, in relationship to our bosses. And then uh, last week as we started um, the relationship between husbands and wives, and so we'll pick up on the second half of that today. So again, we're just standing up to read one verse. You don't have to stand very long. So I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter speaking to husbands. Here we go. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's jump in here. Let's take a look at these verses. You see there at the beginning of verse 7, Peter uses the word likewise. Um, It's interesting when you flip back to verse 1, you see the same word. He says likewise, and he's speaking to the wives there. And so he gives the wives some instructions about uh, how they ought to relate in uh, in relationship to their husbands. Um, But again, both of these sayings, talk to the wife and talk to the husband, begins both of them by saying likewise. So he's relating what he's about to say back to something that he has just said. And what he has just said, he's been talking about the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, he says, He himself, the Lord Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now carry that forward to your life and mine. Peter says that given that Jesus was willing to do this for us, given that Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself on our behalf, um, likewise, we should be willing to do the same for one another. And so he's talking to husbands here in verse 7 um, and says likewise. And so what we have in verse 7 is yet another, for instance, another area of life where the self-sacrificing nature of Christ can be manifested, again, particularly in relationship of husbands and how they relate to their wives. So ladies, the presence of this likewise should be really great news for you because it tips us off to the fact that Peter is about ready to call all the men folk in the room to a life of self-sacrifice as he relates to you. And the lady said, amen. All right, well, we'll keep it going. Maybe they'll get a little stronger. Back to verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, some of your translations may use the phrase a considerate way, and I think that that's an appropriate rendering of the Greek here, a considerate way. Being considerate suggests taking into account the feelings, the dreams, the wishes, the hopes of your spouse. In the Greek, the word that's translated understanding is the word gnosis. The word gnosis literally means to know something, to comprehend something or someone, but not just a little bit, but to comprehend someone fully, to completely get this other person. So the kind of knowing, the kind of understanding that Peter has in mind is not pure factual information where you know her birthday and you know your anniversary and you observe those things, but we're going to a much deeper level to look deeply into the heart of a wife, to learn her preferences, her needs, her wants. And friend, when you are tuned into all that, then you are responding to her in a considerate way. It marks a curiosity of mind that is never satisfied. It means to invest in that relationship, and to retain an ongoing intimacy with her, whereby you gnosis, 
what it is that she is thinking and what it is that she is feeling. You understand her. You comprehend her fully. And Peter is saying, in this way, husbands, you should live in relation to your wife. Peter continues, verse 7, showing honor to the woman. Now, a couple of things here. Notice that Peter refers to the wife as the woman. That is different than how he has referred to her up to this point. In earlier verses here in chapter 3, in referring to the wife, he always calls her the wife or wives. And then earlier in this same verse right here in the phrase before, he refers to the wife as wives. But here in this occasion, in this phrase, he uses the word woman. Why do that? Why not just say, showing honor to your wife? Well, in the Greek, if we were to translate that statement literally, word for word, it would read, showing honor to the feminine one, to the feminine one. And so Peter is pointing out here the difference between this person and how you might think of yourself. This is not somebody who's like you guys. This is somebody who is a wholly different person. This is a uniquely different person who processes information differently than you do, who looks at the world differently than you do, whose inclinations are not to run roughshod over people. She is gentle. She is intuitive. She has a built-in nurturing spirit about her. She is the feminine one. And for these many redeeming and complementary qualities, men, we should show honor to her. Friends, you don't show honor to someone that you disrespect. You don't show honor to someone that you don't hold in high regard. So again, the Bible, Peter is inviting here for husbands to honor their wives. Now, some folks may look at these verses and think that the Bible is calling us back to an era of female oppression. Let's talk about that. That the Bible is trying to undo the many gains that have happened on behalf of women. Well, quite the opposite. Rather, the Bible is elevating women. The Bible is calling for husbands to honor their wives. Friends, that is not oppression. That is freedom and respect. That is a recognition of value and equality of persons. Let's stop and appreciate the cultural context into which Peter is writing these words. In the first century, remember, women did not own property. In the first century, women did not have the right to vote. In the first century, women did not work outside of the home. They were not self-sufficient. They were dependent upon the males in their life to provide for their own welfare. And this was the cultural norm. Yet into that environment, the Bible disrupts the value and traditions of that male-dominant culture and shows honor and says, show honor to the feminine one. Friends, we might actually credit Think about this. What a reversal of how people have taken this text. We might actually credit Peter and the Bible for bringing greater gains and awareness and freedom to the plight of women down through the ages. I would dare say that Christianity has been a liberating force for women, not a source of oppression. And we read Paul talking on this same subject. The conclusion becomes very clear. Paul writes Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Listen to this verse. Husbands, love your wives. And he's not just talking about some sort of romantic kind of love. He's very specific. He says, but as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Friends, there are many words in the Greek language, I think four or five, that translate into the one word in English, the word love. Um, And one of those Greek words is the word eros, and it refers to a romantic kind of love. But that's not the love that uh, Paul uses here. He doesn't say, husbands, eros your wives, and don't love her in that way alone. But rather, he says, to use, he uses the word agape. Agape love is a self-sacrificing kind of love. Just as Christ gave himself up for the church, just as Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, likewise, the Bible is calling for husbands to do the same. 
I liken this to charging out into battle with, with our sword in our hand, running out in front of the rest of the troops and being willing to take on the world on behalf of our family. This is chivalry in its finest hour. Husbands who are willing to give their very lives to protect and provide and secure and preserve the happiness and the joy and the very life of their wives. Folks, that is what both Peter and Paul are calling for. And that is a far cry, a far cry from a male-dominant reading that some folks associate these verses with. Let's go back to verse 7. One of the reasons, uh, perhaps, why these verses by Peter have gotten such a bad rap is because of what Peter says next. Let's take a look at this. He says, middle of verse 7, Peter, in referring to the feminine one, calls her the weaker vessel. You say, Gordon, why would he do that? I mean, why would Peter seemingly elevate women and then the very next thing he makes a statement like that that just seems to kind of undermine everything that he said up to this point? Why would he do something like that? Um, Something that very easily could be misconstrued. Well, it depends on what you think Peter means by that statement. Does Peter mean that she is weak-minded, that a woman is incapable of handling certain situations or things? Or is Peter merely pointing out that women are not physically as strong as men. Let me share with you what one renowned New Testament scholar in Ephesus had to say on the subject. This is from R.C. Sproul. Dr. Sproul writes, and I quote, weaker vessel does not mean weak-minded. Peter is clearly referring to physical strength. I have met women who are physically stronger than their husband, but that is extremely rare. In most cases, men are physically stronger than their wife, end of quote. So what Dr. Sproul sees in these phrases, and I would agree with him, is that Peter is merely acknowledging a basic fact of life. And that fact is that testosterone produces a stronger, bigger, sometimes heavier, right, human being. You know, I would be willing to go out on a limb and say that in my high school where I grew up, that if uh, there were a few girls in that school who could beat a few of the guys in arm wrestling, like if we were to have arm wrestling contests, bring out the best of the girls, and they could whoop uh, probably a number of the guys. But if we were to put all of the girls in the school in a random arm wrestling match against all of the boys in the school, the percentage of wins would go overwhelmingly in favor of the boys. Overwhelmingly. Why? Again, because testosterone produces in boys' bodies a stronger and bigger outcome. And so this is not meant to be offensive, Peter's statement, acknowledging something that's a basic fact of life, or at least it shouldn't be offensive. Peter is merely recognizing the fact that women are physically weaker. And therefore, he uses this as yet another reason why husbands should honor their wives. Not to dominate them as his sinful nature or his base instincts might lead him to do. Peter is calling husbands away from that. He's not advocating husbands to treat their wives harshly or inconsiderately just because he's bigger and stronger than her. But rather he is with an understanding and honor he's to treat her. Loving his wife with a sacrificial agape kind of love. As Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, so we should, gentlemen, be willing and wanting to sacrifice that way for our wives. Peter's calling us to do what Jesus did. This is far from, friends, far, far from any sort of a put-down of women. Sometimes this text gets a bad rap, but this is, not, this is just Peter acknowledging a basic fact of life. Rather, this is an invitation to men not to abuse the strength, not to dominate or to be harsh, 
toward their wives. Yet when some folks see that statement from Peter about women as the weaker vessel, suddenly they put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. I've been wanting to use that in a sermon forever. Anyway. All right, before we get to our most important question, I just want to take a few moments to share how some, perhaps even many Bible scholars, have uh, treated uh, this text or what they've done with this text. Because, you know, it, it could be misconstrued, it could be misunderstood, and because of that, some folks, this is what they've done with that. Um, given that these texts have some difficulty in them, some modern Bible scholars have taken the approach that all of this is nothing more than Peter and Paul expressing the views of the culture of their day. That that's all that we have here. In other words, there's, this is not some biblical mandate for all people, all times, and all cultures, but rather this is just Peter and Paul expressing the patriarchal culture that they knew, that they were accustomed to, that was kind of written into the way that they think. Therefore, what they say is that we ha- what we have in this text is not a timeless biblical truth for all people, all times, and all places, but rather a culturally anchored value that is not relevant for us today. And so, therefore, their conclusion is we must reconstruct. I'm, kind of, I'm paraphrasing here from what some of what I read. That we must reconstruct what Peter is saying here to fit or accommodate the modern cultural context. context but also because these teachings of Peter and Paul need to be brought up to the standards of an enlightened and improved point of view. Let me read that for you again. Therefore, their conclusion is that we must reconstruct what Peter is saying here to fit or accommodate the modern cultural context, but also because these teachings of Peter and Paul need to be brought up to the standards of an enlightened and improved point of view. There's a problem with that. While that may allow us to dismiss these arguments and to declare ourselves more enlightened than the biblical writers, at least on some issues, the problem with this approach is if we employ this as our biblical interpretive analysis, like how we're going to approach the Bible, we're going to look for culturally uh, anchored stuff and just pick and choose through here which we think are the culturally anchored stuff, Uh, on this issue, then what's to stop the next guy or the next gal down the line from saying the same thing that, well, you know what, you said that's a culturally anchored issue there, but I think this is a culturally anchored issue over here as well. And so it puts us on a slippery slope, and there are no breaks, friends, for that slippery slope. Um, I live in this world, I deal in this world, I teach in this world. I'm telling you, there are no breaks when you step out on that slope. Um, It is a dangerous, slippery slope. It sets the stage for a Bible from which future interpreters can and will, and I watch them do it all the time, pick and choose the parts of the Bible that they like while dismissing the rest. Friends, this represents an erosion of biblical authority. So the onus is on us to do the difficult work of wrestling through the context of the day to thinking about things and understanding what the original author meant. And when that meaning is found in each of our hearts, then to submit to God's word. That's what's on us. Remember, these authors are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God gave them these words. Peter said over in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21, For no prophecy, talking about Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Friends, our job is not to tell God what he should think. Our job is to adjust our lives to what God thinks 
And we don't have to wonder what God thinks because he wrote it down. All right, I could go on and on about that. I hope you get my point. Um, I hope you see the danger of saying that this was just a culturally anchored point of view. But we got to move on. It's time for us to stop here and ask our most important question. Uh, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, that's a great question. Let's see if we can answer that. I want to give you some sociological perspective on all of this. And I think it'll help, help us when we walk out of these doors and encounter some of what's happening in our culture, in our world, um, and see it through a biblical lens and understand what's happening. So let me, let me share some of this with you. I've got three views for you here of a male-female relationship that have been observed by sociologists worldwide. So if you look at how men and women relate to one another across the world, all different cultures, all different um, nationalities, different parts of the world, it kind of boils down to three different views. And so here they are. The, um, the first is what uh, sociologists call the male dominance view. For much of human history, this has been the story of male-female relationships. The male dominance theory sees all men as superior to all women. That's the male dominant view. Practically, what that means for women is that she has very little freedom. She has a society that has, gives her very little rights. She is a doormat to her husband, a doormat in society, except amongst other women. Opportunities for education and advancement in industry, those just really do not exist for her. The husband acts in a harsh way toward her. The discipline of the children is uh, modeling much the same. It's harsh. Swing the pendulum in the opposite direction. And the opposite extreme, what you have is where America is heading today, and that's an egalitarian society. Egalitarianism emphasizes sameness. Say that word with me. Sameness. That's, that's, that's what you're, gonna, you're hearing in culture. You hear more and more of that. It says that there are no differences between men and women. Because if you acknowledge that men and women are different, then you surrender that, men, that women cannot do whatever men can do, which is the opposite of the goal of egalitarianism. Again, egalitarian wants to emphasize sameness. Women can do everything men can do. Um, and so the goal is to completely liberate women from men. And with modern uh, fertility clinics, women are getting their dream come true. They don't need men anymore. I'm, it's kind of silly, but it's, honestly, that's what's happening. Uh, they don't need men anymore. I, can't, I can just go to the clinic and get what the man can give me, and then I can go on with my life. Who needs a man? Now, while the liberation and freedom and independence sound like a cause for celebration, not all the results of egalitarianism are positive. With its emphasis on sameness, a negative result of egalitarianism is gender confusion. No one can define what a woman is. No one can define what a man is. Those are viewed as just cultural constructs. What we might associate as typical female behavior or typical male behavior, the egalitarian person would say, well, those are just the result of the society that they're growing up in or the household that they grew up in. Those are just learned behaviors, not the qualities and characteristics that are inherent with being a boy or being a girl. Under this view, as more and more women adopt masculine traits, those women become less and less attractive to their male counterparts. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a, uh, six stages of maturity from this lady named Janet Hagberg. And one of the stages, stage three, she talks about how this can become a trap for egalitarian-minded women. Here's what she has to say, and I quote from her book, Real Power. Women who arrive at stage three with all the right degrees and career moves sometimes think the way up is to compete like the boys do. They sacrifice their feminine side and act like men 
in language, dress, and everything. It may, in fact, work for a while but, uh, and bring the same rewards that men seem to be getting, money, status, activities, position, control. But sooner or later, the word gets out. The behavior she thought would buy acceptance is now labeled aggressive. The pendulum has swung too far. Women can be strong, self-sufficient, analytic, decisive, and still be women who love, care, nurture, and feel. In other words, she can still be the feminine one. In other words, Hagberg is saying there is no need to sacrifice your femininity. There is no need to become like the boys in order to achieve your potential. There is a path forward that does not do like the boys do. Under the egalitarian view, this is seen as the way forward, though. Women need to become more like men, more masculine, and in order to compete in, in, order to compete in the world. And so we see the emergence of the demasculinized, effeminate male and the rise of the aggressive, domineering female. Now, the Bible sets between these two extreme views, the male dominance on the one hand and egalitarianism on the other hand, with what's called the complementarian middle. Okay, so this is the biblical worldview. The complementarian middle is the idea that men and women are different, and that when these two uniquely designed by God persons come together and their union complements, their union complements one another, it's like two different pieces of a puzzle forging together, and that those two different pieces of a puzzle form a whole. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 speaks about this. Jesus quoted it later in his ministry. Genesis 2 and verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God designed men and women differently, friends. Ask any preschool or kindergarten teacher. Think about it. They'll tell you. Those little folks running around, there's a difference between the boys and the girls. They'll confirm it. Furthermore, the Bible does not see these differences as a cultural byproduct, but rather as the unique design that God wrote into the building blocks of life. Let me give you just a quick biology lesson that will explain some of what I'm talking about here. So when the baby is in mama's womb and it comes to the ninth week of fetal development, um, some amazing things happen uh, in the brain of that little baby. Um, the hypothalamus releases androgens. This is a, a, a hormone bath, basically into the brain itself. And it causes a lot of the neurological fibers that connect the left and right hemispheres of the brain from being able to talk to one another. So it's basically severing some of the connection between the right and the left hemisphere. In boys, in biological boys, um, that androgen bath is pretty heavy. Um, and so resulting in a more, I don't know my left from my right brain. Anyway, somebody could tell me, but a, a more logic-sided versus an a more emotive-sided. So in, those, in, the, in the alpha males, they had a lot of androgen that bathed, that came out of them in, in that ninth to twelfth week of fetal development. And this is why, moms, when you're carrying a baby and you get to that ninth to twelfth week, you start feeling sick and stuff because there's a lot of uh, hormones that are being released uh, into the brain of that little baby. And so that's causing you to feel the way you feel. Um, and then some boys, you know, they maybe didn't get quite as much of an androgen bath, right? Uh, and they were maybe a little bit more of a weeper, uh, like some of us are. So, but, but then there's my brother, who clearly the Lord, like, exploded androgen into his brain. And anyhow, um, the complementarian middle 
is more, though, than recognizing just that there's a difference between boys and girls. It's recognizing that men and women are different, but also equal. Also equal. Notice what Peter says. Back to verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, in case you didn't notice. Right? How beautiful that is. Peter is reminding husbands that he's writing to here that she is going to be in heaven just like you are. She is a child of God just like you are. An equality of persons. That's the complementarian middle. It recognizes that men and women are different while also elevating women to a position of equality. Different but equal. Friends, that's a world that I can live in. That's a world that makes sense to me. The complementarian middle. And so there's a brief sociology lesson for you. What I hope that that helps us do is to look out at the world that we're living in and begin to critically be able to evaluate some of the stuff that's coming at us and to be able to say no to some things and yes to others and to help find that balance that the Bible points us toward. All right, I got one more insight for you, one more what difference this makes. I'm going to make it very short. Let's take a look back uh, at the end of verse 7. End of verse 7, Peter writes these words. He says to the husbands, so after all these instructions, then he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers, guys, may not be hindered. Friends, again, Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God speaking through Peter, God telling us what he thinks. And God says, fellas, if we mistreat our wives or we treat her harshly or inconsiderately, that may be why we feel like our prayers are not being answered. God puts a premium on how we treat our wives, fellas, to the extent that he is willing to erect a wall, not pick up the phone when we call up. God is saying, basically, if we treat our wives in harsh and disrespectful ways, then God's just saying, until you're ready to correct that, I'm just going to be here waiting, and I'm not answering the phone. God puts a premium on husbands loving their wives. Friends, we are supposed to do that as Christ loved the church, to agape our wives, to sacrifice for her happiness, for her joy, for her hopes, for her wishes. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today with uh, some fresh insight into how you see this marriage relationship. Lord, you made us. You know how we're going to work best together. Lord, may each of us, with these fresh insights and the power and strength of your Holy Spirit, aspire and live toward that person you're calling us to be. None of this, Lord, comes natural to us. This requires something supernatural inside of us, knitting us together, softening our heart, 
bringing about humility of spirit. Lord, we ask that as we come around this table now, we look at what you were willing to do. May we be reminded of what your word says. That while you bore our sins in your body, Jesus, likewise, this is how we should live in relation to one another. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning in this time of quiet, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.